What do you think? No. You buy it? <laughs> the problem is, uh, yeah. Should, should we talk about like what we're gonna do in this podcast? Like, what what are we? What are we? <laughs> what the hell? What, what are, are we, we doing here, this? Marcus? What are we gonna take this? I mean, I don't really have much. You got nothing. This was your idea. I know, but like, all right. So, all right, what about this? What about diplomacy? Is there a diplomatic face-to-face diplomacy aspect to this? <laughs> we talk about that every time. You just talked about it in the last podcast. So every time you end up bringing up nuclear stuff, I end up talking about diplomacy. We just it was shift the the substantive topic to the same exact thing each time. I'm just trying to play to your strengths, and this is oh. this is all that there is. <laughs> this is the only thing I got. Yeah. So, uh, all right, fine. Forget it. We don't have to talk about diplomacy. <laughs> it's just so boring. Like I. I that's the problem I have with this. But did you agree with me? Like, I don't find any of this interesting. Do you find it interesting? I mean, are you interested in this? We just did this whole like lead up. I, know, right? I, I refuse to. I refuse to turn back. We're we're pushing ahead. What about nuclear? Can I ask you about nuclear? Can I talk about? Can I talk about nuclear energy? Do you know anything about that? Yeah. Do we have to every time we got to do nuclear? <laughs> That's what I'm saying. That's why I don't want to talk about diplomacy. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Cheap Talk. My name is Jeff Kaplow. I'm an assistant professor of government here at William & Mary. And joining me today, as always, is my esteemed colleague, Marcus Holmes. Hey, Marcus, how you doing? Pretty good, Jeffrey. How are you? I'm doing well. I've been following uh, the whole diplomatic discussion around climate change that's happened recently in, what, Glasgow? Is that what we're doing? So tell, tell, uh, tell us what, the, what this meeting is about, and uh, maybe we can get into some discussion of the international angle on uh on climate change mitigation okay uh well this is uh so-called cop 26 which is basically it means that this is the 26th united nations uh kind of uh hosted climate change conference uh of the parties they they say so cop is you know, conference of the parties and it's the 26th one um that they've had and i think the idea is that Unlike a lot of um, sort of things that happen in the United Nations where uh, it's mostly states interacting with one another on, a, on, a, on various issues, and sometimes you have like NGOs and things that show up at the UN and, and give speeches and participate, I think the idea with the, the Conference of the Parties is that you bring together um, states, countries, you bring together civil society actors, you know, NGOs, uh, corporations you know, uh, scientists. And the idea is, I think, to bring all of these people together in in one room, or in this case, you know, many different rooms, but as part of a single conference, where the idea is that you can sort of join forces to think about uh, how to best address uh, climate change, how to best address environmental concerns, and ideally get some broad agreement, um, you know, among, among states about how to tackle these issues. And so these conferences, um, you know, are, are quite large. Like one of the things that's been striking, if if you've been watching any of the sort of TV coverage, I mean, there are there are thousands of people at this thing. I mean, there are, you know, this is this is like kind of like going to uh, like a major convention in Las Vegas, except it's in Glasgow and it's about it's about the climate. Like there are a lot of people, a lot of entities, a lot of representatives there, uh, and so it's a pretty pretty big deal. And it's also a big deal because. You know, I think I think a lot of people realize that we're at uh, a fairly critical time uh, when it comes to environmental concerns. The pandemic, I think, has sort of heightened everybody's uh, awareness of this. Not that the pandemics and the environment are necessarily tied together, but this idea of sort of like global challenges um, and the idea that there are there are severe threats to the system. You know, sort of broadly thinking about you know the, the globe, the planet, 
as a system, I think has heightened people's sort of desire to see something uh, come out of this, particularly when the pandemic, as we've discussed in this podcast, has been a has been an event and a challenge where we haven't seen a lot of international cooperation, particularly early on in the pandemic. We didn't see a lot of international leadership. I think people were kind of looking to this conference with the hope that we would see something come out of it uh, that would look like, you know, a, a cooperative arrangement uh, where we've, we've just been sort of lacking that uh, in, in recent times. Yeah. And I guess just to kind of fill in a little bit of what you were saying on the Conference of Parties. So the Conference of Parties is the kind of decision-making body that exists as part of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, which was established back in the early 90s and is the kind of international agreement that sets the table for some of the treaties that have come about, um, some of the, the formal international organizations that govern climate change mitigation and agreements between states to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and other things. So the, the Kyoto Protocol from the late 90s and the more recent Paris Agreement are kind of formalized agreements that have come out of the UNFCCC process, the Framework Convention on Climate Change. And the Conference of Parties is the kind of higher level decision-making body that exists as part of that framework convention. And this idea of having periodic international meetings that involve lots of the stakeholders in an agreement, including states, but also civil society and nonprofit organizations and others, is a model that's been replicated in a few different kinds of organizations, including, in my little neck of the, neck of the woods, the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty, where they have every five-year meeting review conferences where states are party to that, but also nonprofit organizations and civil society. And the idea is, if you're trying to build international consensus towards some ultimate goal, then having a mechanism that involves more than just the state parties is a, potentially a good idea in trying to, to build that consensus. Isn't it also potentially a, a very bad idea? I mean, it, it seems like um, if I was interested in having states come together and uh, have an agreement on, on climate change, I probably don't want Shell and Chevron to be uh, involved in that, in that process. Like, why, like, convince me that why it's good to have fossil fuel uh, uh, producers or not producers, but can, what's the word for challenge? What, what are they? they? They're fossil fuel companies. They they use fossil fuels. They exploit exploiters of the earth. Exploiters. Whatever Shell and Chevron and BP do to the fossil fuels that exist in the earth uh, and, and create the sort of crisis that we're in, why would it be a good idea to have them uh, in the discussions about how we're going to fix that? Well, because it provides a mechanism for them to get PR credit for doing. <laughs> <laughs> stuff, right? So so uh, so there's a couple of angles to this. So one is harnessing the groundswell of civil society and nonprofit organizations that are involved in this area and giving them a venue through which they can pressure governments. Um, and I think that is kind of self-consciously what some of this is about, that we're going to let all these civil society groups into the building and they're going to have a chance to hold the states accountable for not following through on their commitments. Whether that ever happens, that's, I think, part of the idea of the process. And this is something that has been built into a lot of treaties uh, more recently, having this kind of built-in mechanism for for um, the international community more broadly, not just states, to have a say in, in how the organization moves forward. We've seen this in environmental treaties, in human rights treaties in particular, but also in um, like, like the nuclear ban treaty has this element as well, where it's very strongly situated in civil society. The business element of it, I think, is really interesting because I think the idea here is like, let's let BP and Shell come to this meeting and we can, you know, throw questions at them and maybe some other things. 
but we can also give them a chance to say in this meeting, hey, here's what we're doing to support uh, mitigating the the damage from climate change, whether that's uh, enough is a, is a different question. But without that entree into the building, now we have a purely adversarial relationship. By building in this mechanism for our BP to sit there and say, here's the progress we're making, well, maybe we slightly incentivize them to actually make that progress. There's a mechanism here for the business community to like get credit for things they're doing. And that's something good. That's what we want to incentivize as part of this process. But I don't think it's the case that that these mechanisms allow for BP to lobby more effectively. This is not a good venue for lobbying. If you're a BP, you don't want to go to this UN meeting that's like crawling with press and like grab a president and like put them in the corner and say, here's what I want you to do. You should do you should do that before the meeting. Right. So I don't think that that this is really like increasing the influence of these companies, but it is providing a venue for us to reward them for good behavior, which is generally a good thing. So one of the things that I've been struck with um, is that while the idea for the conference, I think, makes a lot of sense and we can we can discuss, um, you know, the reason organizations like this exist and what they're supposed to do and, and the tragedy of the commons and how do we overcome those those types of collective action problems. I think it makes a lot of sense sort of theoretically. Um, and the idea of it is very good. But one of the things I've been struck with uh, or struck by in looking at the news coverage is that there's been a lot of disappointment by by people on the ground about how this is, has played out. Uh, so, for example, if you follow Greta Thunberg uh, on Twitter, she's been very like uh, uh, strong in, in lashing out against the conference, saying basically – this idea that you have put forth that we're going to bring civil society together, we're going to bring corporations together, uh, and we're going to bring heads of state together, and so on and so forth, um, you make it sound so good. But the way this works in practice is that it's been very excluding uh, uh, and exclusive and not inclusive. So some of the things that she, she pointed out um, in her tweets is that everyday people – have actually not have been allowed to, to participate in the conference. So uh, the idea of bringing civil society, if you think that sort of like like citizens and, and people of the of the earth, people that are being affected by this could come to the to the conference and participate, that has not been allowed. Journalists have, have also been um, very constrained in their ability to watch the proceedings. There was a I was looking at a Twitter thread that I was showing my class the other day where a journalist who, who covers climate um, uh, stuff for her for her you know her her her, her living uh, went to the conference and was basically told, "Okay, you can you can watch it uh, on your computer in in like one of these conference rooms, like this this big sort of like open space with lots of like cubicles. You can sit there and connect to our network and then watch the the proceedings that are taking place like in several rooms down down there. But you can't go there, you can't ask questions and and so forth. So so even for journalists, there's been a sense that." This is not exactly an open and, and transparent process. So, so can I follow up on that though, Marcus? Sure. Yeah. Who cares? What, what what does that tell us about like the the potential outcome of this process? You say that as if it's it, as if that's like a knock against against the meeting, which I mean, I guess from the perspective of someone who can't go but wants to go, that that is a knock against the meeting. But you can say that about like major sporting events, right? Like like what is the outcome here that the lack of inclusivity implicates how does this change what actually comes out of the meeting right well we just talked about how the idea of this is to bring together civil society and corporations and and heads of state if if that's only in the marketing materials but the the meeting is actually just the heads of state maybe in the corporations or maybe the the most important ngos and the and the heads of state it loses 
the 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 sort of reason for its existence, right? The whole re- the whole purpose of this was to bring together civil society. So people from civil society, I think, are rightly saying, "I'm not part of this conversation. I'm not part of this this process." Was was Greta not invited to this thing? I mean, really, she couldn't get in. I think Greta got in. Yeah, but I don't think, but but like not like not like me. Not 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 like you, but also not journalists who do this for a living, like who follow this and so know something about it and are going to ask the right questions. So, for example, we just talked about how it might be good that these corporations are here, right? Because you can. You can sort of shower praise on them for the things that they've done well and sort of, you know, say in the areas where they haven't done quite as well, hold their feet to the fire. But if there's not the people in the room to hold their feet to the fire or to give them praise, as as you might suggest, then how's it going to happen? Then we're just left with, you know, the states, the heads of state uh, talking amongst each other and then maybe a couple of, of, you know, representatives from a corporation or something like that. So I'm, I'm just saying – if the idea of the conference was to bring together all of these various actors, state actors and non-state actors alike, it seems like, based on the coverage I've been seeing, they haven't done a great job of, of facilitating facilitating it. Now, there are, we are in the middle of a pandemic, and I, and I understand that there are you know, sort of uh, limitations on how many people can get into a room and so on and so forth. So there might be very like, reasonable logistical reasons why this seemed a little more in, uh, exclusive and, rather than inclusive. But I am struck by the marketing materials of the meeting not really exactly aligning with how people in civil society in particular feel about the meeting. Yeah, that, that is shocking that the marketing materials don't, don't align <laughs> with reality. I share, your, I share your outrage about that. But at, at a theoretical level, do you, do you see them saying, I mean, if the idea is, is transparency and open communication and uh, we have a forum for talking – I mean, there's a, there's a whole literature in political scientists about for, forum effects, right? And the idea is that by having things out in the open, where you have to justify arguments, uh, you know, we we you know, you, these the actors that are involved in those in those forums have to bring it. And if they can't bring it, then what's going to happen is they're going to be shamed, and they might subtly change behaviors, or sometimes overtly change behaviors, or they might realize that they've lost the argument, and that the other side does have the better argument. And it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get the outcomes that are that are wholly different than otherwise. But I think in some instances you might. So if you can't actually have those form effects because part of the, the the group of people that will be having the arguments are not allowed to participate, I can see how that would be disappointing, not just to the people that are, that are that are left outside, but also to the process where the the process is supposed to be about civil society holding the feet of the people who are who are doing these things to the fire. That's that's my only. All right. Well, let's take a couple of steps back here and think about what are the prospects for success of this kind of an international organization dealing with the threat of climate change? I mean, when we when we look at the structure of the Conference of Parties and the U.N. Framework Convention and all this and the Kyoto Protocol and the Paris Agreement, are these going to work, Marcus? I mean, is, is your sense that like, okay, this is a structure that can be effective, that can get countries working toward mitigating climate change? And if we can let Greta's friends into the meeting, then, OK, now we're there. Or is this like, what are we even doing here? This isn't going to work anyway. Oh, I mean, I, I think that there is there are very well reasoned approaches to both sides of this coin, which is to say, I think you can make very strong arguments uh, for why something like this is just doomed to fail. Right. Right. If the idea is that we're going to have meaningful action that is somehow going to going to have some effect on the climate and it's going to it's going to more more importantly like quote unquote solve the crisis that we have i think you 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 would be perfectly able to give me 10 different reasons why that is just naive and never going to happen right on the other hand i also think there are some very good arguments for why something like this might be successful and i think one of those 
is that the track record of of climate change conferences, something like you know the Montreal Protocol or Kyoto Protocol, have actually been, depending on the data that you look at, somewhat successful. Now this is this is a tricky area because the skeptics could always point to um, data that's favorable to their argument, uh, but there's also a lot of data that would suggest that that something like Kyoto was uh, particularly um, uh, successful, right? If you, in, th- in terms of thinking about what the projections looked like before Kyoto and what they ended up being afterwards. So at, at a, just at a general sort of level, I don't, I don't expect a conference like this to, to be able to uh, solve all of our climate change problems. I don't think anybody thinks that. But I think the track record of bringing countries together and then having them agree to either, either binding or non-binding uh, sort of resolutions and, and targets and things like that actually in the past has been, has been somewhat effective. So I'm, I'm actually optimistic uh, about that. I think the one sort of big elephant in the room as, as we talk about this and the, the, we sort of think about, you know, Kyoto and, and prior climate change agreements, it, it's been the role of China. And one of the, the criticisms of this uh, conference is that China has not played more of a role. In fact, Xi didn't even, didn't even go, right? So that you have these, and, and Putin didn't either. They wrote statements that they, you know, that they got read. So there's a sense that, one of the reasons why Kyoto was not more successful is that Kyoto came along at a time uh, where China's rise sort of economically was, was occurring. And so you have this sort of, you know, really, really steep curve of, of emissions as China is uh, essentially industrializing and kind of becoming a modern economy right at the time when other countries are trying to limit uh, their emissions. And so what, what appears then, if you look at this on a graph, is you say like overall emissions basically did didn't go down as a result of Kyoto precisely because they're being offset. The gains by countries that agreed to the, the protocol are being offset by, by uh, other countries, namely China's rise. And so if you think about what's going on with COP26 now, and China is not participating in a, in a sort of full, full form or fully fledged you know, form, I think, I think the skeptics or the, the people who are a little bit more pessimistic about what's going to come out of this uh, have a have a strong point here because they're they're looking at who are the world's you know biggest emitters of of um, you know carbon dioxide for example methane and one of the big players is not not participating fully yeah so I I think it's worth kind of stepping back and recognizing that uh, climate change is a difficult problem the challenges are immense in in making substantial progress towards um, mitigating climate change limiting war- warming over time. I, I think this is a, a really hard problem, obviously, and we should think about, well, what is the mechanism by which an international agreement like this or an international kind of conference like this could lead to actual steps toward mitigating climate change? And I think there are kind of a few mechanisms that people talk about. So one is, and you, you already mentioned this, is persuasion, that maybe getting all these players together in a, in a building or a city, um, even Glasgow, we, we can persuade each other, the Greta's of the world um, and the uh, right thinking countries of the world um, that recognize the challenge of climate change can sit down with the others and say, we need to do more. Here's what we need to do. Um, and, and there can be a persuasive aspect to this. Another potential mechanism here is in creating costs or benefits for countries that do set limits and abide by them. So one way that the framework convention might work or the Paris Agreement is by giving countries credit for their actions in this way, and then in so doing kind of incentivize them 
to move down that road to to limit their their um, their emissions in some way. Maybe because the the international community will now recognize them as being um, kind of full members of the international community, doing their part for whatever kind of prestige that brings. Or it could be more concrete kinds of deals if there are ways that we kind of make deals with other countries to incentivize their behavior there. And also in getting leaders on the record that they are committed to making changes toward climate change. And here we could have a kind of international reputational cost associated with that or or kind of an audience cost where if a leader says at a meeting like this, hey, we believe in mitigating climate change, we're going to set this limit, but then they don't actually abide by that limit. Well, now maybe there's some penalty that the leader bears down the road. That's at least one possible way meetings like this could work. I think the most uh, the most evidence is behind a kind of third option for the way meetings like this can be effective, and that is in coordination. That is, you come to the meeting and everyone kind of already knows where they stand, right? Like some countries want to do a lot to to move uh, mitigation efforts forward and set limits. Some countries don't. And my view is that there's probably not a whole lot of persuasion going on at a meeting like this. Like countries kind of come in with their position. Um, we know the position of civil society for the most part. We know the position of VP and and Shell for the most part. And so there's no nobody's persuading anybody. But what might be happening is... These meetings provide a focal point that allow the countries to coordinate on making changes in concert with each other. So if the U.S. is going to um, go down to a particular level and make a particular commitment, the U.S. recognizes this is a major issue that needs to be dealt with. Well, we can kind of coordinate our efforts with the efforts of other countries that already agree with us. The problem is not everybody agrees with us. And uh, not every country sees this as an existential threat in the same way. And even countries that do see this as an existential threat might be saying to themselves, and this is always the problem um, with these kinds of issues, they might be saying to themselves, let's let the U.S. do the work here. Let's let these other countries do the work here. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. And if they mitigate enough, then I won't have to mitigate at all. And this is the kind of fundamental dilemma um, that faces these kinds of problems in international um, environmental agreements generally, but particularly climate change, where it doesn't matter where the emissions come from, right? This isn't like, you know, local air pollution. It's greenhouse gas emissions. So it doesn't matter where they come from. It's going to affect the world um, in its entirety. So for from China's perspective, why not have some other country mitigate um, and uh, and they come out ahead in, in that way? So the conference isn't so much, in my view, going to persuade anyone. It's not so much, in my view, going to penalize anyone for not abiding by their commitments. There's no mechanism for that at all. It's more, let's coordinate um, amongst the people that already agree. Let's make a decision about how we're going to move forward with this. And um, we'll try to, we'll say some things that are not nice about the the countries that that don't agree. But for the most part, there's nothing we can do about that. And we're going to kind of reach our goals together and we're going to do what we can. But as long as it's just this one group of countries that want to make these big commitments, it's hard to see how we really reach our overall goals in mitigating climate change. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, I agree. I think oftentimes um, these conferences start with relatively high expectations and there's this idea that maybe there's going to be this breakthrough and somebody, you know, somebody's going to give the speech that sort of motivates everybody to to be persuaded and maybe get shamed into taking more more action. But I think you're right. If 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 what this is is essentially coordination, um, or one way that I would I would think about it is more sort of like in the idea of of lowering 
the sort of transaction costs of letting people know kind of like what your positions are. I mean, imagine trying to do this like via email or something like that. Very difficult. Like the one of the benefits of having could this meeting could this meeting have been an email? Could this be? I think it could have. <laughs> and, and, and frankly, uh, if you if you weigh the sort of cost of the emissions for everybody to fly to, to Glasgow, I mean, it might be actually that that while email would have been annoying or a doodle poll or something would have been annoying. Uh, it, it might have been better for the environment to do it that way, but they should have done it all in a WhatsApp chain, WhatsApp check chain. I think or, that would or have been Zoom fine. or something like yeah, that. Yes, yeah. I, I I I actually uh, think there's a lot of merit to that, but. If the transaction costs of, of are significantly lowered uh, and bringing everybody under one roof is like a good way to coordinate and basically get information out there. I mean, sometimes we talk about this as like trying to make, you know, asymmetric information more perfect. So you say like, OK, here's where I stand. Here's where I stand. You kind of can figure out where we where is the legitimate, you know, sort of uh, the bargaining range, if you will, where we can find uh, some some common ground. I think that's all that's all fine. But what that does mean, if you're right, and I think that you are. Is that if we're being honest, civil society doesn't play much of a role here, right? I mean, if you're, which your thesis is that these countries show up basically knowing what their their bottom line is more or less, basically able to kind of predict what the bottom lines of the other parties are going to be, um, and maybe civil society, if if there's enough people and it's enough you know sort of passionate arguments, give give enough rousing speeches and, and things like that, it might move the needle slightly. But at the end of the day, your your sense seems to be uh, this is kind of predecided. Uh, before the before the event takes place, and what we're doing is just kind of exchanging information that we had prior uh, to the to the event. I mean, if that's the case, then it really does lead lead to the question of like, why are we we're going through this this sort of show of involving civil society and and saying that the the whole the whole uh, a reason for the existence of this conference is to bring civil society and states together. Yeah, no, I and I think this kind of I was going to come back to this that that the the issue of uh, Greta's friends not being able to get into the building, you know, if you think of this as a coordination mechanism, well, then it doesn't matter. There are, there are mechanisms though where the involvement of civil society could help lead to better outcomes, and we should at least mention what those are. Although I'm not particularly um, optimistic that any of these mechanisms are are going to be particularly effective and potentially uh, particularly for a challenge as great as climate change. But the, the idea here is that civil society can help mobilize domestic constituencies in various countries that will put political pressure on leaders in those countries to move in the direction of climate, climate change mitigation. So um, setting new greenhouse gas limits or whatever. One benefit of potentially, at least in theory, of involving civil society is that these are groups that have a more direct connection to environmentally uh, interested constituencies in member state countries. They mobilize those domestic constituencies, place pressure on the on the leadership, and you get this kind of a feedback effect whereby the involvement of the civil society in the first place helps leaders make deeper cuts than they would otherwise have made. The, the problem, though, is that that operates really only in the subset of countries that were already on board with making pretty substantial cuts to for benefit climate change. It's hard to imagine that that mechanism operating in the countries that are really the problem countries when it comes to getting them to make commitments going forward. So in general, would you say that you're pretty pessimistic about the prospects of not, not just this conference, but just I, my sense from hearing you talk is that you think that the climate change uh, issue is such a thorny one for international politics. I mean, and there's, there's lots of reasons for this. And you mentioned the idea that, you know, collective action problems, you know, certainly anarchy is a, is a problem. Although, I, ironically, like, even if we had, like, some type of world government, I'm not even sure that that would help because there's, there's still going to be entities 
uh, that are against taking actions that are costly to them, uh, but would but would help the environment. So I'm not even sure that would that would actually solve the problem. But anyway, so anarchy clearly uh, doesn't help. The fact that you have this collective action problem doesn't help. The fact that uh, you have a situation where we have very a difficult time sort of enforcing any type of actual agreement. Now, one of the things that people have floated over the years is like a, a carbon like market or a, yeah. or a tax or something like that. I mean, there are things that could be done. Um, I was looking at the draft proposal that came out of the, the COP26 uh, this morning or yesterday, and there was none of that in there. But th- there could be the creation of something like that, sort of a meaningful market sort of place uh, for carbon, which could change and make things you know a lot more costly for a lot of people. But maybe that's exactly what we need. So anyway, so there's things that, that we could do, but my sense is based on what you're saying that, that you're, you're sort of pessimistic generally about uh, international response to climate change and, and seem to be fairly pessimistic about what's going to come out of this conference. Absolutely. And, and everyone should be pessimistic. So this isn't in just my usual cynicism about, about the world, Marcus. This is, a, this is a problem that is just immense. And anyone who's optimistic about the outcome when it comes to climate change is making a mistake. We, we need to be pessimistic, and, and it's only that deep pessimism about these potential solutions that are being floated that will motivate us to act, because, because this is not going to work, right? Like, this, the current approach of voluntary reductions by, by a handful of countries is just not going to get us there. The, part of the problem is that um, these commitments don't stick. These commitments are rolled back by different by political changes in countries. We've seen that in the United States. There are just too many barriers that keep popping up to having these international coordination mechanisms work out. I think there is much more opportunity for success at the domestic level. Although, you know, the U.S. situation, of course, is always really difficult with with trying to get anything passed. But there was a a point in time when cap and trade mechanisms, where you set a limit on carbon emissions and then you trade, you create market mechanisms to price carbon and trade it domestically. There there was a time when that was a bipartisan popular idea and things have since kind of, you know, gone in the wrong direction where now um it's hard to imagine Republicans supporting that kind of a that kind of an arrangement. But um those kind of market mechanisms are e- much easier to implement at the domestic level and we've seen some of them in in Western Europe with some effect I think. There are policy options that offer prospects of of dealing with climate change and particularly technological options that o- offer prospects of dealing with climate change, including changes in energy consumption generally. And we see this trend globally toward more renewable energy sources. And so I, I think like we're in we're going in that direction, but it's that that's it's that that's going to save us if something saves us. It's not the meeting at the UN, right? I, I just think there's no reason at all to 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 be optimistic that that's going to result in anything meaningful. It may be the venue at which countries announce their their uh, limits, right? Which is which is fine. It's good to have a venue for something. But I'm not going to attribute the meeting itself. Um, I'm not going to give the meeting itself credit for getting us to that point if we get to that point. One of the ideas that gets floated sometimes is, uh, and this would be more more domestic than, than international, is that we should have much more uh, emphasis on nuclear energy. And I know this is you, you say nuclear stuff with respect to weapons, but I'm wondering, do you have anything, any insight into whether or not sort of a, a renewed interest? Now, nuclear energy has been was popular for a long time uh, and then became very unpopular, I think, due to some uh, accidents and then uh, kind of went away for a while. And then I think as, as people started to realize that those accidents might be uh, things that we can learn from and, and over, be overcome, uh, there's been sort of a renewed push recently, my sense is anyway. 
of thinking about nuclear energy as as one of the potential game changers, right? And not not just sort of like a plant here or there, but like a real focus and investment uh, in the U.S. in particular on building more nuclear plants. Now, there are environmental concerns with those too. Like a lot, this, this is not something that that is necessarily cost free in terms of the environment. But but I think the people that I've I've sort of read who I um, and I'm not a, I'm not a nuclear scientist. I don't know about how any of this works, but my sense is that a lot of the latest technology can kind of overcome some of the, the hurdles that were present in the past and that we can kind of get beyond this. Do you, do you have any insight into this or any thoughts on nuclear energy more generally? Yeah, I think the the politics behind the expansion of nuclear power globally are, are really interesting because it's there's strange bedfellows happening. The global environmental movement does like does not like nuclear power. Uh, because it creates nuclear waste. Uh, that's just how it works. And um, that waste is going to be with us for uh, thousands and thousands of years. And there's nothing that can be done about that. And so that fact alone is kind of um, makes nuclear energy a poison pill for, for, for those organizations. And so you have the same groups that are advocating for all these measures to mitigate climate change, basically taking off the table, potentially one of the most useful ways to mitigate climate change, which is produce more nuclear power, which does not produce greenhouse gases, right? Um, so it's uh, it's interesting. We've taken some useful tools off the table in part of that discussion. I think the real prospect for growth in nuclear energy is not in the United States. It's in developing countries where the cost of building nuclear um, nuclear energy, nuclear power plants are, are much lower. In the United States, the startup costs for a nuclear power plant are just prohibitive and um, make it unlikely that we'll see much expansion of nuclear power in this country. But globally, a number of countries have plans for lots of new nuclear power reactors. Along with that come other problems, environmental problems for sure, but also problems of nuclear proliferation, which we've talked about because it's the same kind of technology that you could use for, for nuclear weapons that you use for, for nuclear power. But it's definitely one of the tools in the in the arsenal um, when we think about how to deal with with uh, with climate change globally. Um, and I think nuclear power companies have picked up on that. And that's part of the marketing now. So you have this, this really interesting dynamic where you have these kind of massive companies that build nuclear power plants saying, hey, this is the way to mitigate climate change. And you have these environmental groups that are usually um, all about mitigating climate change that say, hey, no, we're not going in this direction. Let's build a wind farm instead. And so it becomes um, uh, this kind of interesting, interesting political battle. But I think there is promise there for sure. And, you know, nuclear power um, technology ha is always changing. And there there have been um, a number of technological advances that make nuclear power less risky in terms of an accident. Although I think it was never really that risky in terms of an accident. It's just that if an accident happens, it's a really impactful thing. There was um, this whole Chernobyl thing you may have heard of. That was a big deal. I, I have. Yeah. I have heard of it. Some people argue that that was, that was actually the downfall of the Soviet Union. Is that Chernobyl right? Disaster. Well, because once word got out, I mean, this is, this is what, you know, Gorbachev was very worried about is that it, it, he was worried about his people and, and he was worried about the environmental uh, catastrophe, I'm sure. But one of the things they were, they were also very concerned about is once the West found out about this, sort of a signal, you know, that maybe the Soviet Union didn't quite have its act together. Uh, and they didn't, they, they weren't able to sort of keep things domestically, um, you know, running, running smoothly, which is of course was true, right? I mean, part of the problem with the Soviet Union was economically they were, they were, they were destitute in the 1980s. And so when Chernobyl hits, it's, it's meaningful for all kinds of reasons. One of which was they were very fearful about how the West was going to, going to react. And, and some of the people, you know, in the Soviet Union at the time sort of look back and think that was kind of where it all, it all fell apart. But 
I mean, I, I think about this every time we have a Surrey uh, uh, warning emergency uh, system. You know, it's sort of you you worry about these things. It happened in Japan, you know, of course. And and so when you, there's something about nuclear energy that I think is just for a lot of us who don't know anything about the science. Uh, just very scary because you see the examples, the horrible examples of of the bad things that can happen. Uh, but that has to also be offset with the bad things that happen uh, with other forms of energy as well, like you know fossil fuels. Obviously, might be more distributed, might be more diffuse. Uh, but you know, there's lots of problems with that as well. So anyway, I'm I'm I would be uh, in favor of of learning more about uh, nuclear nuclear energy and seeing if that's a potential path forward. Because I think you're right; it's, it definitely needs to be to be explored. Well, speaking of nuclear energy, maybe we um, maybe we can segue to our our new segment, Ask Cheap Talk, and hear a hear a listener question. What do you think? Excellent, I like that idea. Our question today is from Preston. Preston, go ahead. Hi, Professors Holmes and Caplow. My name is Preston from Reston, Virginia, and I was hoping you all could offer your thoughts on Iran reengaging in nuclear talks with the United States. It seems that Iran has called for the United States to assure that they will not renege on negotiations made this time, and the United States has said that that is impossible. So I'm wondering if you have a hopeful outlook for the outcome of these negotiations, or if you think they will even happen at all in reality. Uh, thank you. That is a great question, Preston. Great question. And I have to say, we actually have an expert on the podcast today on the, the Iran nuclear deal. And that is... We have a special guest? Professor Kaplow. Oh. We, no, 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 no. We don't need a special guest. We have somebody who wrote a... You wrote an article, if I'm not mistaken, the day after the, the Iran nuclear deal. Did you not? I did. Yeah. You did. The day and after the so deal. so I feel like there is no better person to answer this question. And I will, of course, add my thoughts as well. But I want to I hear from the expert, Professor Kaplow. Will you address Preston's question? Yeah. Thanks, Preston. Good question. Um, the Iran nuclear deal, it just so happens, is on the docket for my international security class Friday. So we're, as, we, as we speak, the next class is, is on this. I think the prospects for an Iran nuclear deal are not great going forward. And that's mostly because of domestic politics in Iran and, and partially in the United States. But I think Iran is the real problem here at this point. Uh, you know, Iran wants, obviously, from the United States, sanctions relief. Um, they want U.S. to commit to this process. Um, just to give a little bit of the background for for those that are not following this closely, um, there was this Iran nuclear deal, the the, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, with uh, between Iran and the United States, Russia, China, UK, Germany, and France. I want to say is that right, Marcus? Did I get everybody? That is right, yeah. The EU yeah. three plus plus Russia and, and China. This was signed under the Obama administration in the second term, and uh, it basically committed the countries to provide sanctions relief to Iran in exchange for Iran, uh, Iran's agreement to limit its nuclear program, its civilian nuclear program, it says, right? This is not about nuclear weapons specifically. Iran has said it's going to limit its nuclear activities generally, which has insisted all along are for civilian use, for nuclear power use. It agreed to limit those efforts to destroy some parts of its nuclear infrastructure and to allow increased access by international inspectors to the parts of its nuclear program that were ongoing, um, including like how many counting how many gas centrifuges are running to produce enriched uranium in their country and so, stuff like that. Under the Trump administration, the U.S. for a few years kind of hesitated on what to do and then finally pulled out of the agreement. But the rest of the parties to the JCPOA are still kind of technically in the agreement. 
Iran's response to the U.S. pulling out has been to kind of slowly walk back its compliance with the terms of the agreement in a, in a tiered way and in, in kind of an interesting way, in a way that's designed to signal that this is not about Iran deciding it's going to quit and pursue nuclear weapons. This is about Iran not wanting to be abiding by an agreement that the U.S. has bailed on. It's about increasing the pressure on the United States to come back into compliance with its commitments under the agreement. So Iran kind of first said, OK, well, we're going to operate slightly more centrifuges than we said we were going to under the agreement. And now we're going to not allow the IE access to this part of the facility for a little while or not as often. Right. But they're doing these things in a, in a very kind of structured, organized way. Right. Designed to put more pressure on the United States going forward. So now go fast forward to, to present day and we've got the Biden administration that kind of has said all along that it wants to get back into this deal if it can get the right deal. Um, Iran's response has been to kind of slow roll the the discussions about getting back into the Iran deal. They have said, OK, we want to talk to everyone about our getting back into the deal. But then they refused to have a meeting with everyone together. They said, OK, we're going to have meetings with everyone individually, all the parties to the agreement individually. And maybe it's going to take a while to schedule that. Right. Like, we, you know, we're, we're busy today. Maybe tomorrow we'll meet with you. And there's a lot of that sort of thing going on. And, and in Iran, we have a new administration coming into power that is um, kind of less committed to the, the deal generally, but still kind of nominally says they want to be involved in, in a deal like this going forward. But it's not clear whether the domestic politics in Iran um, continue to support Iranian engagement with the United States um, as this, this new administration comes into power. So I get the sense that they're kind of slow rolling things, stalling. And in the meantime, they have been um, drastically limiting International Atomic Energy Agency access to their facilities, um, which is alarming and worrying for everybody. I don't think that's necessarily evidence that they're pushing forward for a nuclear weapon or anything like that, but it is. Um, it, it does kind of make clear how important it is to get all the parties back into compliance with this agreement so that the rest of the world has a better understanding of what Iran is up to. Very well put. I, I agree with all that. I would just add a couple, a couple of things. I mean, to the direct question about that Preston asked about sort of the United States uh, providing an assurance that they're not going to do this again, basically renege on it. Of course, of course they can't. I mean, Donald Trump uh, is, is the presumptive nominee for the Republican Party in 2024. So obviously, if, if they were to miraculously get a, a deal, let's say in 2022, and then he becomes the nominee and then maybe wins an election in 2024, what's going to happen with the Iran nuclear deal? It's going to be dead again, right? So Iran knows this. Everybody in Iran knows this. Everybody in the United States knows this. There is no such guarantee. There never will be. In case there was any doubt about it, the, uh, a bunch of prominent Republicans in Congress wrote a letter to Iran saying we will not support a deal if one is agreed to and we'll roll it back as soon as we have control of Congress. So so like it's not as if this is a mystery for anyone. Right. This is well known to everyone involved. No. So so domestically in the United States, uh, it's pretty obvious to anybody who's paying attention that there would be a lot of opposition to this and a potential uh, Republican presidential candidate would never be for this deal and would likely get out of it on day on day one or day two or whatever their administration. So I think that is that is a huge, huge problem. And Iran knows this, of course. The other thing uh, that I think is also relevant here is that there's this idea in international relations um, and, and political economy where, where states have the ability oftentimes to do sort of bilateral things. There's this idea of like, like shopping around uh, for, for better deals, right? And one of the thoughts has been that if we have enough sanctions on Iran, eventually they're going to be desperate enough 
uh, to kind of come to the table and it would, maybe we don't have to have a new, new deal with them. They're just going to like give us what they, what they want because their economy is so bad and they need their sanctions to be, to be lifted. Well, one of the things that's happened uh, since the original Iran nuclear deal is that Iran has been able to get um, uh, financial relief, so to speak, from places like China. They've, they've been able to sign deals because China wants uh, uh, cheaper oil. They've been able to work uh, South Korea. And so one of the, the, the things that might have been pressuring Iran uh, to, to create a, a deal, let's say, or to at least give us some of the things that we want, like these inspectors and, and things like that, don't really exist anymore. And so the idea that the, the sanctions are going to lead them to a, a, a negotiating position that's favorable to the United States, I don't think is happening either. So in addition to the stuff that, that at the international level where we can't make these guarantees or assurances, and in addition to what's going on in Iran domestically and the United States domestically, I also get the sense that Iran's economy is not in as desperate shape as we thought it was going to be. And so therefore, their bargaining position is actually uh, better than, than we thought. So I think all of these things kind of come together and, and create a, a pretty gloomy picture about the prospects for, for a nuclear deal. I th- I disagree with you a little bit on the on the uh, economy side though, Marcus. I think it, uh, I think Iran's economy is in horrible shape, and part of that is certainly due to sanctions. Um, the the U.S. sanctions, particularly financial sanctions on Iran, um, the the ones that were kind of put back in place or newly put in place under the Trump administration, uh, have really had a pretty substantial impact. I think on Iran's economy generally, and that you know is part of what. Um, led to this this particular particular outcome of the Iranian elections and 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 the new regime that's coming into power. But the, I, I don't know that the the economic story is as rosy as you make it out to be. Jeff, I'm going to do something that I, I very rarely do in these conversations. I'm going to bring a little data to the table. Okay. So in in, in 2018, um, Iran's economy uh, uh, shrunk by the so their GDP was negative six percent. 2019 negative 6.7%. 2020 positive 3.3%, which is higher, in fact, than a lot of the early projections, which were going to be positive in like the 1.2%. So I'm not saying that that you're wrong, that Iran's economy uh, is is in bad shape. I think that you're you're absolutely right about that. But I do think it's relevant to think about what what the baseline here is for our comparisons. And compared to what we were looking at a couple of years ago, it is actually much better than than those those periods. So the last time they had significant growth was in 2017, which is also 3.7%. And so it seems to me like they're they they are rebounding and partially it's I think because they've had other international partners that they can work with that are not just western european countries or the united states and they can get essentially some of their economic needs met elsewhere. Well, Iran has said, let's say, let's just put it this way. Iran has said that the sanctions have caused trillions of dollars in damage. This is these are the new Trump related sanctions. Right. And, um, you know, and, and they, they say that as a as an entree to demanding compensation for those sanctions for them to come back into the deal. So it's not just the dropping of sanctions. It's let please compensate us for the damage that his sanctions have done up to now, which, you know, that's that's yeah. very unlikely to happen. I, I would say. I'm a, I'm a slightly more optimistic than you are uh, about a deal because I do think Biden really wants one. In other words, I think that while you're completely right that, that Iran domestically might not be favorable to a deal at the moment and Republicans in the United States are not favorable, uh, I think what Biden understands is that a, a major deal internationally will help him quite a bit, particularly at a time where his approval rating is, 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 is horrendous. 
He got a lot of flack for what happened in the Middle East and Afghanistan. I think that his administration really wants to make a deal. And look, when you want to make a deal, we all know this from, from bargaining theory, all of a sudden you're, you're, what you, you're willing to accept uh, uh, widens considerably. And so I would not be shocked if, despite all the, the constraints that we just talked about, and I agree there are many, I would not be shocked if, if you know, John Kerry gets back into the, back into the seat or, or they get somebody that's a real good negotiator on the U.S. side to kind of come in at the last minute and, and, and get something done. I think Biden really wants it. I agree with the idea that Biden really wants it, and this would be a big, a big foreign policy win for an administration that hasn't had many. Uh, so I, I, I can see the motivation there. I, I think really the barrier isn't so much on the U.S. side at this point, but uh, maybe that's just my read of it, you know, as coming from a U.S. perspective where, you know, I knew the people involved in doing it. I know they want to be get back in, back in. And, uh, I, you know, the, the tricky part is getting Iran back to the table under conditions that are um, acceptable to both sides. So I think it'll be interesting to see where this goes. I mean, the meetings are happening now about the Iran deal. Um, and hopefully there can be progress it, it, because I think the original Iran deal signed by the Obama administration was tremendous foreign policy win for the United States, not just because it limited Iran's nuclear progress, which was, was a big deal, but because it gave the U.S. much better access to understanding what Iran was doing. And by killing the deal, we are not just removing the restrictions on Iranian nuclear development, which is worrying anyway, but we're cutting off our vision of what they're actually up to. And so I think the, the, biggest, the, the biggest win from the Iran deal was this access, was this understanding of what Iran was doing. And uh, it is really important to get that access back so that we can take appropriate policy steps to limit Iran's nuclear weapons efforts if they decide to go down that, down that line. Brilliant. I completely agree with that. So, so folks, stay tuned. We should actually see something probably by the end of this this semester. We'll have some sense of how the negotiations are are going. At least. Not that there be a, a deal or a no deal necessarily, but like you said, it's happening right now. And so, we will information will start to kind of come out in the next uh, several days, couple of weeks from now. Thank you again, Preston, for your question. Great question, Preston. I would like to invite everyone to leave us a message, ask us a question, make a comment. Tell Professor Holmes what you think of face-to-face diplomacy, really. Mm -hmm. So you can do that at www.speakpipe.com slash cheap talk. Or you can always send us an email and let us know what you'd like us to talk about. We're always open to your suggestions. I think we should leave it there. Marcus, thank you for joining me today. Sounds great. Thanks again, Preston. And we'll see everyone next time. Thank you. Although, if you've been paying attention, Wolf Blitzer from CNN was staying in Edinburgh. Really? My hypothesis is that the hotels are nicer. And my second hypothesis is that they have a nice shot of like the castle in Edinburgh. And if I, have you been to Glasgow before? I've never been to Glasgow. Have, have you Let's been just to put Glasgow? it this way. It's not Edinburgh. It doesn't, okay. it's, it's much more sort of, uh, not, to, not to bash Glasgow, it's a fine city, but it doesn't have the sort of vistas and the, and the, the scapes, you know, the like landscapes that Edinburgh does. Because Edinburgh is just a striking like city. I mean, it's got that like real castle. Feel. What country is this? Is this Scotland? 
Scotland. Ireland, yeah. Scotland. Okay. This is Scotland. No, yeah. the Irish would be very upset with you, as with the Scots. I'm not. I'm not really good at the geography. It's very complicated. There's the UK, then there's Britain, yeah, and it's very Great complicated. Britain. I mean, it's. <laughs> it's, it's it, what is Wales? Yeah. Who knows? Nobody knows. No, 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 no one knows about Wales. Well, right. you know, and you're like a frequent visitor to Scotland. The, the listeners yeah. may not know, but you are the academic director of William and Mary's joint degree program with St Andrews University in Scotland. So I, I believe you're frequently out there. I am frequently out there, and and uh, I have every once in a while flown through Glasgow, which is not that far away. Uh, it's often cheaper to fly into Glasgow if you're going to St. Andrews uh, than Edinburgh. And so every once in a while, I've, I've flown into Glasgow and I've stayed over in Glasgow and I've been there a couple of times. It's just, it's a very nice uh, sort of industrial kind of city. And I say industrial, not in like the, you know, like the way Cleveland is, not to denigrate Cleveland either, but it's, it's, it's industrial. It has like a sort of industrial sense to it. Whereas Edinburgh has like a much more kind of like historic castle focused, the stuff you normally think of with Scotland. And so I think for that reason, uh, CNN and the other networks like, you know, made their, made their decision to like sort of keep their people in Edinburgh and have these nice views for the TV audience back home and not, not being Glasgow. That's my hypothesis. Sure. I, yeah. I, I buy it. Do you do yeah. you think Glasgow is more of a like a more of a Cleveland or more of a Pittsburgh? Ooh, that's a tough one. I'm going to go with Cleveland, and the only reason is I, I I haven't spent as much time in Pittsburgh, so I'm more familiar with with Cleveland. I admit it's not a it's not a great sort of uh, analogy. They're not analogous in many ways, but I if I were if pressed, I would go with Cleveland. Yeah. All right. The 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 so called mistake by the lake. <laughs> so they got their they got their own rock and roll hall of fame, you know. Yeah, so I mean Cleveland. I, I, I t- so as somebody who has spent some time in Ohio, uh, having gone to graduate school in Columbus, I've spent time in Cincinnati and Cleveland a little bit. I, I actually think Cleveland is a very underrated as Pittsburgh is. Although the word has kind of gotten out about Pittsburgh, I think. Yeah, I think Pittsburgh is kind of on the rise in terms of. Yeah, uh, it's on the rise. Yeah, but I, I feel like Cleveland. Uh, and Cincinnati, for that matter, are, are both lovely cities that uh, maybe deserve a little bit more respect. I mean, Cleveland had to, did have the unfortunate – was it the river that caught on fire or was it the lake? One of the – the, 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 Cleveland had a situation where like the lake or the river was on fire. I'll Google this in a, in a second and we can talk about it. But speaking of environment, there were a lot of chemicals or whatever uh, and the lake caught on fire. Water fire, November 3rd, 1952. Cuyahoga River caught on fire. That's what it was. Uh, the Cuyahoga. Dude. Cuyahoga. Cuyahoga? Cuyahoga, Cuyahoga River. Cuyahoga River. Yeah, it was caught on fire. <laughs> <laughs> this is why we need action on environmental issues. 